traveled somewhere haunted or not, the story would end up haunting them forever. But you don't need to time travel to get more strange and unexplained every month. Just slip on over to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained, where for just five bucks, you'll get three monthly bonus episodes plus other goodies. And for just seven dollars, you'll get all that plus all the regular episodes ad free. So join the growing community of intimate strangers over on Patreon for exclusive content like badass women explorers from the 19th century, creepy British theme parks based on weird TV shows, and cultural phenomena like the bystander effect, and lots more. Patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. Now, in the mid-1800s, higher education was finally opening its doors to women. In single-sex schools, of course, because God forbid women get the same education as men, and God forbid men be hopelessly distracted from their superior education by an accidental sighting of a woman's ankle or something. By the turn of the 20th century, small women's-only schools popped up around the world, including several in England, like St. Hugh's College in Oxford. St. Hugh's first order of business was to appoint its first president and vice president. Born on September 16, 1846, Charlotte Ann Elizabeth Moberly was the 10th of 15 children Born to George Moberly, who was the headmaster of Winchester College, and his wife, Marianne, whose pelvic floor must have been more like a pelvic sinkhole. Family friend and novelist Charlotte M. Young recalled the Moberlys fondly for their, quote, habits of fun, games, and habitual merriment, animation, and playfulness, end quote. Charlotte's mother, Marianne, who was educated in Italy, personally educated her daughters with the help of a governess. Given that there were eight daughters, there was almost the feeling of being a small class in a schoolhouse as they learned Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. The Oxford English Dictionary of Biographies reports that until she was 40, Charlotte lived at home as a, quote, contented home daughter, end quote, which was probably one of only two ways for women in that era to get out of having to marry and have kids without the mark of scandalous spinster following everywhere they went. It was either become a nun or stay at home and help care for your parents and homestead. And she wasn't the only Moberly daughter who opted for this. Two of her older sisters had as well. When their father died in 1885, the three Moberly home daughters and their mother moved to a small flat in Salisbury where, according to the OED of biographies, they lived and faced a life of genteel poverty, which is, of course, far preferred to just regular old stinky non-genteel poverty. Fortunately for Charlotte, the next year she was invited to become the first principal of St. Hugh's College. It was through a connection from Lady Margaret Hall that Charlotte took over a new Anglican hall specifically for female students at Oxford. While she saw this opportunity as an answer to her prayers and a way out of that genteel poverty, she was nevertheless reluctant. I'm not sure why, though from my own viewpoint it might be because trading a quiet life at home, however genteelly impoverished one might be, for the rigor and demand of an all-girls university sounds daunting. Still, from there, she was chosen to lead St. Hugh's, a school founded for students who could not afford their school fees. 
Elsewhere in England, one Elizabeth Eleanor Jourdain was born on November 16, 1863, in Derbyshire. She was the oldest of ten children, Jesus H. and Mother Mary's uterus, the exhausted vaginas of the 1800s. The Jourdains were a poor yet proud Huguenot French Protestant family who, unlike the Moberlys, weren't exactly warm. But apparently, what the parents lacked in cuddles and kisses or habitual merriment, they made up for in ambition. Eleanor and her nine siblings were driven to achieve in order to better their financial and social stations in life, most of them becoming successful in their chosen fields. Once she reached 14, Eleanor's maternal grandparents pulled a Richard and Emily Gilmore and financed her private school education all the way up through university at Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, in 1883. After university, Eleanor taught at several schools before founding the Corin Collegiate School in Watford in 1892, which boasted more than 100 students in its first decade. Called a born teacher by some of her students, Eleanor's success at Corin brought her to the attention of the folks over at St. Hugh's. Eleanor and Charlotte knew each other from their days studying together at Oxford, and in 1901, during a visit to Eleanor's Paris flat, Charlotte invited Eleanor to become vice principal at St. Hugh's. Eleanor accepted and suggested that before they begin working together, the two should spend some time together to get to know one another. So the ladies had their get-to-know-you vacay together in the summer of 1901, and on August 10th, the two took the train to Versailles for a tour of the house and grounds. The women later claimed the palace wasn't all that interesting, which, let me tell you, I can relate to. Everyone keeps asking me if I've toured the mansions in Newport here in Rhode Island, and I'm like, I drove by them. And they're like, oh no, you must go inside. They're extraordinary. And I'm like, really? Are they extraordinary? Let me guess. It's a bunch of square rooms with a lot of marble and nice views of the ocean. Like, I can just go to the beach and watch an episode of Real Housewives of New Jersey. They like marble too. Anyway, after being unimpressed by the palace at Versailles, the women decided to take a tour of the grounds and visit Petit Trianon, a chateau built in the 1760s by King Louis XV and subsequently gifted to Marie Antoinette by King Louis XVI. Which begs the question, why hasn't anyone gifted me a chateau? I suppose that's my fault for not marrying the King of France. <sighs> Way to go, Daisy. After passing through a section of the gardens called Longwater, the women promptly got lost. In a book, the women later co-wrote together, titled An Adventure, written under the pseudonyms Miss Morrison, in the place of Charlotte Moberly, and Miss Lamont, in place of Eleanor Jourdain, the women recounted the strange tale of what happened next. I'll use their real names so we don't get all twisted up in knots of who's who. First, Charlotte saw a woman shaking a white cloth out of a window of one of the buildings, most of which seemed deserted. She wrote in the book, I was surprised that Miss Jourdain did not ask the way from a woman who was shaking a white cloth out of a window of a building at the corner of the lane, but followed, supposing that she knew where she was going to. Talking about England and mutual acquaintances there, we went up the lane and then made a sharp turn to the right past some buildings. We looked in at an open doorway and saw the end of a carved staircase, but as no one was about, we did not like to go in. 
And Eleanor wrote, To our right, we saw some farm buildings looking empty and deserted. Implements, among others, of plow were lying about. We looked in, but saw no one. And Charlotte continued, There were three paths in front of us, and as we saw two men, a little head on the center one, we followed it and asked them the way. Afterwards, we spoke of them as gardeners because we remembered a wheelbarrow of some kind close by and the look of a pointed spade. But they were really very dignified officials, dressed in long, grayish-green coats with small, three-cornered hats. They directed us straight on. Eleanor recounted this. As we were standing there, I saw to the right of us a detached, solidly built cottage with stone steps at the door. A woman and a girl were standing at the doorway, and I particularly noticed their unusual dress. Both wore white kerchiefs tucked into the bodice, and the girl's dress, though she looked thirteen or fourteen only, was down to her ankles. The woman was passing a jug to the girl, who wore a close white cap. For those of you who aren't into 18th century fashion, the dress of teenagers dramatically changed from the 1790s to the 1900s, and what this gal was wearing wasn't very au courant. Soon, both women began to feel a sort of lonely pall set over the entire experience. Charlotte wrote, We walked briskly forward, talking as before, but from the moment we left the lane, an extraordinary depression had come over me, which in spite of every effort to shake off, steadily deepened. There seemed to be absolutely no reason for it. I was not at all tired and was becoming more interested in my surroundings. I was anxious that my companion should not discover the sudden gloom upon my spirits, which became quite overpowering on reaching the point where the path ended, being crossed by another right and left. It might have behooved Charlotte to speak up because Eleanor was also not feeling it. She wrote, There was a feeling of depression and loneliness about the place. I began to feel as if I were walking in my sleep. The heavy dreaminess was oppressive. The women continued on in mutual and unshared despair until shit really started to get weird. Charlotte wrote, There was no greensward, but the ground was covered with rough grass and dead leaves as in a wood. The place was so shut in that we could not see beyond it. Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees behind the buildings seemed to have become flat and lifeless, like a woodworked in tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees. It was all intensely still. They came across a man sitting on some steps near a little kiosk, who, Charlotte wrote, turned his head and looked at us. That was the culmination of my peculiar sensations, and I felt a moment of genuine alarm. The man's face was most repulsive, its expression odious, his complexion was very dark and rough. And Eleanor recounted this. The man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark, the expression was very evil, and yet unseeing. And though I did not feel he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance to going past him. But I did not wish to show the feeling which I thought was meaningless and we talked about the best way to turn and decided to go to the right. But no sooner had they made that decision when another man appeared seemingly out of nowhere, or as Charlotte put it, quote, who had apparently just come either over or through the rock, end quote. 
This man was rather more red-complected than dark, though Charlotte thought he was ruddy from exertion. She added, He was tall, with large, dark eyes, and had crisp, curling black hair under the same large sombrero hat. He was handsome, and the effect of the hair was to make him look like an old picture. Both women heard the man urgently tell them, This way, look for the house. Though Eleanor noted his accent sounded foreign, as though Paris was not his native city, and though she couldn't remember entirely what he wore, it seemed to both women his clothes and shoes weren't at all contemporary. And then Charlotte wrote, Turning my head to join Miss Jordan in thanking him, found to my surprise that he was not there. The running began again, and from the sound it was close beside us. Confused? Me too. It sounds like she's claiming he vanished, and then they could hear but not see him running beside them? Very strange. And at last, the women crossed over a bridge and arrived at Petit Trianon, where, Charlotte wrote, On the rough grass, which grew quite up to the terrace, and with her back to it, a lady was sitting, holding out a paper as though to look at it at arm's length. I suppose her to be sketching, and to have brought her own camp stool. It seemed as though she must be making a study of trees, for they grew close in front of her, and there seemed to be nothing else to sketch. She saw us, and when we passed close by on her left hand, she turned and looked full at us. It was not a young face, and though rather pretty, it did not attract me. She had a shady white hat perched on a good deal of fair hair that fluffed round her forehead. A light summer dress was arranged on her shoulders in handkerchief fashion, and there was a little line of either green or gold near the edge of the handkerchief, which showed me that it was not tucked into her bodice, which was cut low. And, like the phantom man who gave the women directions, Charlotte thought this woman's attire was really outdated. Not in a judgy, skinny jeans are so last season kind of way, but more of a does anyone still wear a hat? kind of way. That was a Sondheim reference. I'll go take a time out. She also admitted that she looked right at the woman and, quote, some indescribable feeling made her turn away, annoyed at her being there, end quote. Again, I can relate. I am generally annoyed that anyone is ever anywhere. According to Brian Dunning at Skeptoid, Charlotte decided the woman in the outdated clothes, whose very presence was annoying, must have been Marie Antoinette. Makes sense, if you think about it. A lot of people found Marie Antoinette pretty annoying. Remarkably, somehow, Charlotte did not immediately say, holy shit, that's Marie fucking Antoinette. In fact, she said nothing, and was even relieved that Eleanor didn't ask the Queen of France for directions. She wrote, It was rather a relief to me that Miss Jordan did not propose to ask whether we could enter the house from that side. Listen, I'm no huge fan of strangers. Actual strangers, not you strangers. But if I came across the long-dead Queen of France, I'd probably at least be like, Aside from all that, Mrs. Antoinette, how was the cake? Next, they met a young footman whose attitude seemed to be a little bit these fucking guys about Charlotte and Eleanor, but he gave them directions back out of the gardens and, it seems, back into the 20th century.
Strangers, we have a brand new sponsor. Cook Unity is a meal delivery service that brings gourmet meals right to you from world-renowned award-winning chefs, including some of my favorites from cooking shows. It turns out being a grown-up means having to figure out what's for dinner every night for the rest of your life. And TBH, it's not fun. I used to love cooking, seriously, but now it feels like a chore. And with a lot of the other meal kits, I still end up feeling uninspired. But with Cook Unity, I'm picking meals created by incredible chefs with ingredients that are locally sourced and don't require cooking. That also means less packaging. I don't know about you, but opening and throwing away 10 tiny bags of plastic per meal makes most meals taste worse. And with Cook Unity, the packaging is recyclable, compostable, or reusable. So no more nasty tasting guilt. The meals come fresh, never frozen. You can pick four to 16 meals per week for way less than it would cost to eat these meals out at a restaurant. I just ordered 16 different dishes because I couldn't decide. I am so excited for the tomato coconut shrimp, the seared sea bass with tamari chili and green beans, and the chicken biryani. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com strange or enter code strange before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code strange or going to cookunity.com strange. As the women emerged from the gardens and apparently a whole other century, the doom and gloom that had hung around the whole event suddenly lifted. The ladies then went back to the flat, had tea, and didn't fucking talk about the literal time slip they'd both experienced. I can only imagine how awkward that tea must have been, just long silences in between delicately sipping tea, gently clearing throats, and occasionally saying something like, the roses were pretty, weren't they? But never anything like, I'm not, like, crazy, right? Like, we did just see Marie Antoinette, right? The outright denial of what the pair had just experienced went on for a week. A week! My bestie and I once saw Amy Adams on the street and couldn't stop talking about it for a month. A full seven days went by before, while writing about the event in a letter to her sister, Charlotte finally summed up the courage to ask Eleanor if she thought perhaps Petit Trianon was haunted. And Eleanor was like, oh, thank God, I was starting to think I had legit lost my mind. But get this, even then, they only both admitted to seeing a few strange men. The one with the smallpox scars and dark complexion, and the one with the ruddy face who seemed very keen on telling them which way to go. It wouldn't be for another three months that Charlotte and Eleanor really got into what had happened that day. And, as if the event itself wasn't weird enough, the pair would find out that they both didn't even really experience the same event. Charlotte mentioned the sketching woman and was shocked to learn that Eleanor hadn't even seen her. Charlotte wrote, I exclaimed that it was impossible that she should not have seen the individual, for we were walking side by side and went straight up to her, passed her and looked down upon her from the terrace. At this point, the women decided to write their accounts separately so as not to influence each other's versions and see what matched and what didn't. 
Not only had Eleanor not seen the Queen of France casually sketching in front of her chateau, she also hadn't seen the woman shaking out the white cloth. And Charlotte hadn't seen the woman handing the jug to the girl, even though Eleanor saw them clear as day. Putting their stories together, along with researching more about Versailles and Marie Antoinette's time there, the women estimated they had stepped back to August 10th, 1792, only weeks before the abolition of the French monarchy. It also happened to be the same day they had visited Versailles in 1901, August 10th. And in 1792, it was the day Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI witnessed the massacre of their Swiss guards, the sacking of the Tuileries. Once they made this connection, Eleanor immediately asked a French friend if they had ever heard anything about the Petit Trianon being haunted. Sounding like someone on Are You Afraid of the Dark, the friend said that, On a certain day in August, insert spooky noises, Marie Antoinette can be seen in the English garden, hold the flashlight up to my chin, wearing a floppy hat and a lightly colored summer dress. Cue the thunder crash. The friend added that the queen's servants and courtiers also appeared on this day, replaying their various duties of that day. Charlotte returned to the gardens at Versailles to see if she might experience this whatever it was again, but couldn't locate the exact path they had found that fateful day. The bridge and kiosk were nowhere to be found, and the grounds were full of visitors, not empty and serene as they were when the two women had been there. The women then read every book they could get their hands on that was even tangentially about Marie Antoinette, hoping to find something that would confirm their stories. In Gustave Desjardins' Petit Trianon, Charlotte found a reproduction of a portrait of Marie Antoinette, and there she was, identical to the sketching woman Charlotte had seen. With so many connections to the famous French queen, the women wondered if they had somehow walked into one of her memories. Maybe the memory had been so intense, so vivid, that it was impressed on the place itself. Those of us in the biz, because, you know, I'm officially in the biz now, call these residual hauntings. But I gotta say, I don't think this was that. In a residual haunting, spirits move in a loop, regardless of who or what is around them. But at least a few of the people the women saw that day actually interacted with them, gave them directions and whatnot. Whether or not this occurred to Charlotte and Eleanor, they were understandably super jazzed about their experiences and wrote to our old pals at the Society for Psychical Research, letting them know Petit Trianon was soups haunted and included their written accounts as their evidence. In their letter, they outlined their evidence, including the plow, the outdated clothing, the various buildings, the bridge, and several other anomalous items. The SPR had bigger fish to fry. For example, the lady who was regurgitating cheesecloth and claiming it was ectoplasm. And basically told the women, not today, Bob, and also not really ever, Bob, unless you can come up with some pretty solid evidence, which, good luck. 
But the women were undeterred by the bureaucracy of the SPR and set out to do their own exhaustive research for nine years, the result of which was their book, An Adventure. In the 162 pages, they outline their three visits to Versailles, the results of their research, answers to questions, and the final, wildly sensational chapter called A Reverie. In their second chapter, Charlotte and Eleanor laid out their research and how it proved their hypothesis. In 1905, Eleanor spoke to a gardener who said no plows had been kept at Versailles since at least 1901, as they had no need of one. Another gardener told them in 1908 that plows had entirely altered since the French Revolution, and the one Eleanor had seen was definitely an old one that could, quote, no longer be found anywhere in France, end quote. But the plow also shows us how the ladies got creative with their research. They actually admitted that they had uncovered a document in the French National Archives that listed all of the farm tools bought for the Trianon between 1780 and 1789 and, drum roll please, no plow. Oh, that didn't go the way I anticipated. But, they insisted, they read in Desjardins' book that, quote, an old plow used in his predecessor's reign had been preserved at the Petit Trianon and sold with the king's other properties during the revolution, end quote. But here's the problem. The source disproving the existence of the plow is from the time period in question, the 1790s. And the source kind of proving that a plow might have existed was published in 1892. Probably not the most ironclad kind of proof they hoped it would be. According to an essay from 1991 titled Contagious Folly, An Adventure and Its Skeptics by Terry Castle, quote, Other objects received similar glosses. The cottage, for example, in front of which they had seen the woman and the girl with the jug, they argued, most closely resembled a structure not now in existence, shown on an old map from 1783 found in the Trianon archives in 1907. The mysterious kiosk, nowhere to be seen in the present garden, was identical, they had discovered, to a lost ruin pictured on another old 18th century plan. As for the little bridge with the stream under it, this corresponded to an obscure Pont Rustique mentioned in a book by the Comte des Ex in 1873, also no longer in existence. It was definitely not, they asserted, the more famous and obvious Rocher Bridge, which, according to calculations they had carried out on the spot, was, quote, too high above the lakes, end quote, to be the same one they had crossed. Most eerily, perhaps, the door they thought they heard slamming as they went up the steps of the Trianon Terrace, the door from which the footman with the peculiar smile had emerged, led only to a ruined chapel that had never been used, according to a guide. Indeed, when Miss Jourdain attempted to open the door from the inside sometime in 1906, she found it bolted, barred, and cobwebbed over from age and disuse, end quote. Charlotte and Eleanor also attempted to somehow identify the various people they saw other than Marie Antoinette. 
The men in the green-gray coats, the women declared, were members of the Swiss Guard, based entirely on the fact that only the royal bodyguards from the 1780s wore uniforms in that color. Again, sure, but this was 1792. What were they wearing in 1792? Had the uniforms changed? Did anyone else wear the same livery? Were there any reenactors there that day? Going even further, they identified the men as, quote, two of the three Bercy brothers, end quote, who were supposedly on duty on Marie Antoinette's last day there. Okay, the color of the uniform dating the bodyguards, I can buy that. But how the hell would they be able to identify two specific men? You may remember, stranger, there were no photographs back then. The women also claimed to have identified the woman and her daughter with the jug, the kiosk man, the running man, and others. The woman and her daughter were thought to be the wife and daughter of one of the undergardeners. Damn, I don't even have a regular gardener. And this was based on the idea that Eleanor remembered the child looking about the, quote, same age as Marion, end quote, the gardener's child mentioned in Ligeans de Trianon from 1879. So just to recap, the girl looked the same age as another girl described in a book published a hundred years after the time period they're proposing they walked into. The kiosk man, or the man sitting on the steps with the pockmarked face, was thought to be the wicked Comte de Vaudreuil, who had acted the villain towards the queen by encouraging her to permit a performance of a politically dangerous play. This identification is on steadier ground. Vaudreuil was Creole and a smallpox survivor. This would explain the man's dark and rough complexion. The guy who ran up to them, told them to look for the mansion, then ran away again, they believed was Marie Antoinette's page, De Bretagne. The smoking gun was found in a journal written by Madame Elof, Marie Antoinette's dressmaker, or one of them, anyway. I'm willing to bet Marie Antoinette had a whole bevy of dressmakers. Madame Elof wrote that in July and September 1789, she made the queen, quote, two green silk bodices, and several white fichus, end quote, which matched what Charlotte saw in her experience. The final chapter of an adventure does nothing to help the women be taken seriously. A reverie was written from the perspective of Marie Antoinette, depressed, in prison, and about to be executed. Meant as some kind of reckoning for a queen they believed should have been treated much, much better, which, knowing what we know now about Marie Antoinette, was actually pretty forward-thinking of these women. In her squalid cell, Marie sank into a trance-like state to relive her last happy memories. Those of her loyal bodyguards, the Bercy brothers, her servants, and her friends. The pair concluded that they had, quote, inadvertently entered within an act of the Queen's memory, end quote. And in a final audacious claim, Charlotte and Eleanor said that Marie Antoinette's memories were altered after their journey into them. That after August 10th, 1901, when Marie Antoinette went dreamwalking, there were now two women there, two strangers who walked past her on the terrace. I mean, if anything, I would say, not having read the whole thing, of course, that this last chapter was ill-advised. 
Nothing is going to put a hole in your credibility more than adding a hypothetical fever dream of a long-dead monarch who is generally still hated by most of Europe. Strangers, I used my new green pan slow cooker the other night to make stewed chicken, and let me tell you, it was amazing. The slow cooker is so easy to use, your toddler could make you dinner. Plus, it's a breeze to clean up because of its revolutionary ceramic nonstick technology. All green pan cookware is free from PFAS, PFOA, lead, and cadmium. Listen, if you're health conscious, which, face it, we all should be, there's no point cooking those healthy organic ingredients in cookware with a bunch of harmful chemicals in it. Whether you're just starting out on your culinary adventure or you're a seasoned cook, Green Pan's cookware will up your cooking game. And if you're not sure what to get, there's a quick quiz on the website to help you figure out which of their amazing pots and pans will fit your life best. Whether you're looking for a one-size-fits-all type thing or you want a different pan for every job, you cannot find any cookware better than Green Pan. But if for some weird reason you're like, holy cow, this is not the best pot I've ever used, Green Pan has a 60-day return policy. So toss those plastic pans and upgrade your cookware this holiday season with Green Pan. Head to greenpan.us and use promo code STRANGE and you'll receive 30% off your entire order, plus free shipping on orders over $99. That's right, 30% off. So head to greenpan.us and make sure you use our promo code STRANGE or they won't know we sent you. Strangers, it's been a minute, but our favorite THC microdose gummies from Lumi are back. Somehow it's already election season? Call me crazy, but doesn't it seem a little early? Also, call me incredibly anxious because that is what I am normally. Add the next 10 plus months of electioning and whatever happens after that to my regular stress, and I am a ball of nerves. Seriously, without my Lumi gummy at night, I might grind my teeth all the way down to the bone. I've tried those liquid over-the-counter sleep aids and they gave me the most uncomfortable, jumpy, restless sleep of my life. It's not good. But microdose gummies from Lumi are so good. Delicious and calming without the nasty effects of drinking or even of prescription anti-anxiety meds. With a half a Lumi gummy, I can be chilled out without being totally zonked out. Lumi gummies are also the perfect thing for when I want to get into the creative flow, but my mind is still spiraling out about, you know, life. Basically, when I need to quiet the cacophony that is daily life, I reach for a microdose gummy from Lumi. Whether you're looking to tune in or tune out, or get in the workout zone or cool down, or if you need help just staying present in the moment without floating off on 7,000 thoughts at once, Lumi has your back. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code STRANGE to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com and code STRANGE. And so, not surprisingly, the book was, let's just say, not well-received. According to Terry Castle, 
quote, from the start, an adventure provoked both extraordinary public interest, 11,000 copies had been sold by 1913, and an extraordinary number of skeptical attacks, end quote. Castle recounts a review by Nora Sidgwick, who happened to be the wife of the president of the Society for Psychical Research, of which he writes that Sidgwick, quote, maintained that Moberly and Jourdain, who at best do not seem to be very good at topography, had simply gotten lost in the grounds and then misidentified what they had seen after the fact. What they encountered there, she argued, were merely real persons and things from 1901, which they had subsequently decked out by tricks of memory, and after the idea of haunting had occurred to them, with some additional details of costumes suitable to the times of Marie Antoinette. Moberly and Jourdain's two Swiss guards, for instance, were undoubtedly ordinary Trianon gardeners. The latter wore little caps, or kippis, which could easily be mistaken for parts of a uniform. Likewise, all the buildings and objects they had seen could be correlated with existing structures in the Trianon grounds. The Temple of Love, the Belvedere, the Rocher Bridge, and so forth. End quote. Another reviewer, a physicist and fellow of the Royal Society, W.F. Barrett, agreed with Sidgwick and basically said the women had only been haunted by overly active imaginations and likely drew their alleged visions from contemporary accounts of Marie Antoinette. But detractors did not deter Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. No, indeed, the women doubled down and said that they realized they hadn't visited a haunted area of the gardens at Versailles that were visited by trapped souls on a loop, but rather had somehow entered into the very psyche of Marie Antoinette herself, which is why they both felt so depressed. The soon-to-be guillotined queen's depression infected the two women because they were literally walking through it. Charlotte and Eleanor continued in their positions at St. Hugh's until 1915, when Charlotte retired, handing over her title of principal to Eleanor, who, it seems, became increasingly erratic and paranoid, culminating in a belief during World War I that her staff was plotting a mutiny against her and that a German spy was hiding somewhere on the school's campus. Her paranoia became so great that by 1924, she'd worked herself up into such a state that she died of a heart attack. In an edition of An Adventure published in 1931, Charlotte and Eleanor's identities were revealed. What impact this had on Charlotte, I don't know. She died at home in 1937 at the age of 90. And perhaps this is where the story might have ended were it not for a former student from St. Hugh's with an axe to grind. In 1957, the aptly named Lucille Iremonger, who had studied under Charlotte and Eleanor, published a book titled Ghosts of Versailles in which she attempted to eviscerate not only Charlotte and Eleanor's claims about their visit to Versailles, but also the very reputations of the women themselves. According to Ironmonger, despite the women's claims that their Versailles adventure had been their only paranormal experience, both women had indeed had many experiences before and after Versailles with visions and apparitions. According to Terry Castle, Ironmonger's book claimed that, quote, In Cambridge in 1913, Moberly saw a procession of medieval monks, 
And at the Louvre the following year, she saw a man, quote, six or seven feet high, end quote, in a crown and toga-like dress, whom she at first took to be Charlemagne, but later decided was an apparition of the Roman Emperor Constantine, end quote. Ironmonger also claimed that Charlotte and Eleanor were lovers. And if you didn't see that one coming, stranger, it's time to bone up on your how-to-take-down-women tactics. This claim comes complete with homophobic tropes about which woman was the husband and which was the wife, based on their personalities. The lesbian subplot has been gleefully adopted by many a critic of this tale, not just because of its salaciousness, but also because of deep-seated misogynistic beliefs that women are subject to delusions more than men because of their weak, impressionable minds, and the added homophobia that the only thing crazier than one woman is two women together. Who's to say what really happened that August afternoon when Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain visited the gardens at Versailles together? Whether their tale was the result of overactive imaginations or a folie à deux, as some people have suggested, which is basically a shared delusion, or who knows, a hoax perpetrated by the women just for funsies, and hell, they got a book out of it. I suppose no one can say. Brian Dunning at The Skeptic thinks that whatever it might have been, the women truly believed their own story. He summed up the mystery that is this whole tale beautifully in a piece he wrote in 2012. Quote, Respected academics they may well have been, and well-intentioned to boot. But no one is above being mistaken or above susceptibility to preconceived notions and all manner of perceptual errors. I'm not, you're not, Uncle Bob is not, and Moberly and Jourdain were not. Honesty, integrity, credentials, and respect have nothing to do with the human brain's function of abstracting its perceptions into something that seems to make sense. There was never any need for authors to introduce lesbian madness and transvestite follies to explain their erroneous perception. Moberly and Jourdain were simply human, and that, in itself, is the most complex explanation of all. End quote. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, do you ever stop to think about the myriad ways your body can turn on you? No? Well, you will after listening to Alien Territory, The Human Body. Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Join us over on Patreon for three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks. Or for $7, you get three bonus episodes and all the regular episodes ad-free. Just head on over to patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by the amazing Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kybernet and Andrea Jones-Sojola. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, Head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. 
You can find us on Instagram at SNUPod and join our Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please do help us out by rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a little rave sentence really helps us out a lot. If you don't like the show, the name of the podcast is Creation Science for Kids. 